Sometimes when you're driving down the road all by yourself, you begin to hear a voice that tells you you need to look around, pay attention. Maybe something isn't quite right. That voice is me. It's the voice of Gord. G'day everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Voice of Gord. This episode should be dropping on Monday, September 11th, 2023. And this is something of an interesting week for those road warriors who drive truck for a living. Our friends over at the American Trucking Association have been running something of a little psyop on us for a few years in the form of National Truck Driver Appreciation Week. You get your barbecues, you get your special discounts at truck stops, maybe. Various little platitudes they put in front of you to maybe have you forget that the American Trucking Association does many things which are actively antagonistic to you, your career, your ability to earn a living, and the size of your paycheck. Well, here at Voice of Gord, we're not having any of that. And for this National Truck Driver Appreciation Week, I hope to bring you a series of interviews which I think will express some gratitude towards you legitimately, and especially with this first episode today, where I bring you someone who's been working to make your lives better for a long time. Wayne State Economics Professor Dr. Michael Belzer joins the show to discuss his long career in academia and also his 10 years on the road and his seminal 2000 book, Sweatshops on Wheels, which documents what happened to the occupation of being a trucker post-deregulation in 1980 and why we're all working so hard for not very much money. Dr. Belzer was very gracious with his time. We went well over an hour and a half, and he brought in a lot of really good data, observations, and argumentation to make the case that basically we're all getting screwed, and he has policy proposals which are backed up by data and statistics which would make our lives a whole lot better. I think you guys are going to enjoy this show quite a bit, and I look forward to bringing you more episodes on trucking every day this week. Don't know if I'm going to be able to do it, but I really hope that I can. Like I say, this show is my gift to you guys. It's free. And, you know, if, if, there's, any, if there's any project that this podcast has, it's to try and make trucking a little bit better. And I hope I've affected that somewhat in my discussions with people like Dr. Belzer. Please check the show notes. You can try and buy his book. It's a little bit expensive at a few places. It's out of print. It's not available on audio. I got mine for free from a library at Cornell, and I have to give it back. Dr. Belzer mentions at the end of the show that he's going to try and get the rights for it back and give it out for nothing, so maybe we just have to wait for that. But if you're impatient, check the show notes. You'll find places to purchase it, including at Amazon. All right, everybody. Well, without any further delay, let's get to Dr. Michael Belzer. All right, uh, g'day everybody and welcome to another episode of Voice of Gord. I'm Gord, this is my voice. 
The other voice you're about to hear is a voice I've been trying to get on this show for quite a while. Uh, a very important voice in the trucking industry that I don't believe enough people know about. One of the OG academic inquests into the consequences of deregulation on the lives of truckers in America was written by this gentleman. Please welcome to the show, Professor Michael Belzer, uh, economics professor at Wayne State University in Michigan, former truck driver, former Teamster. Welcome to Voice of Gord, sir. Thank you very much. Good to be here. We were just talking beforehand that uh, you went to Cornell University, which is only eight miles from where I'm sitting. That's right. I know exactly where you are. Right. So you're you you were at one time a truck driver. Um, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure on your career trajectory, but somehow you went from Cornell to driving school buses to driving trucks to the Teamsters to becoming a professor of economics and publishing this book back in 2000 called Sweatshops on Wheels, which is sort of the OG examination of the trucking labor market uh, downstream of deregulation. So maybe you could tell us how all that got started. That's a, that's a pretty long and complicated story, but I'll try to try to give you a narrative that makes sense. I've learned about this word narrative. It's the new thing. <laughs> so, um, uh, I went to Cornell as an undergraduate. Uh, I studied, I studied the process of change, or tried to understand what makes change happen. Cornell change in what? Change in political, economic, social, you know, the social science side of things. Only I didn't even know it was social science back then. I just tried to figure it out. So it was a tumultuous time, and we were in the midst of a lot of change. This is the late 60s, early 70s. And uh, Cornell allowed, as no, or virtually no other school does, freedom to develop your own major. And I was, I had the prerequisites in several different majors, government, philosophy, or at least uh, political theory, economics, different things like that. And uh, none of those were very satisfying as disciplines to me. So uh, I created a major. The requirement was you had to get an advisor who would sign off on your curriculum. You develop your own curriculum for that major. You know, fields like biochemistry did not exist back then because there was biology and there was chemistry. Even though there was chemistry and biology, they didn't talk to each other. So I had a friend who actually majored in ecology, which was a new idea. Nobody ever did that before uh, at Cornell uh, and uh, and went on to a very successful career in, in environmental work. So I I went off to try to figure out what makes what makes society change, what makes things change, how does change happen and how do you influence that? And that was essentially my major, to, to, to be blunt. And uh, so in the process of doing that, I started out with an emeritus professor of economics. And so I've always had an economic orientation. So, but that's not, the, by itself, that's not it. Uh, that's not enough. And so that's why I had to come up with this major. If I had it to do over again with what I know now, I probably would have 
framed it somewhat differently. But I took all the courses, uh, my second, my last two years as an undergraduate, every course was in my major because I decided what my major was and it all focused. And I used that for the rest of my life and I still use it today. So it's actually been extremely valuable trying to understand the world. You, you, you mentioned you're at Cornell. Uh, what, yep. year, what year is this? And... I graduated in 1972. Oh, wow. Oh, that guy is really is history, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> That's part of what's happened as I've as I've as I've lived to tell about it. I've I've found myself in that position. So um, what can I say? It's it's a strange position to be in. I still look outwardly, except for the aches and pains and uh, scars and whatever. I still look out with the same view as if I was still 20, 20 years old or something like that. And uh, so I'll, I'll look at it that way. Look at the positive side. Right, right. You mentioned after graduating, you became a school bus driver for the city of well, Ithaca? You have to work for a living, right? You, you got to do something. And uh, so uh, I traveled uh, in Europe for a while to visit an old girlfriend in, in, in Italy, came back. Now I've spent all my money. Now what do I do? And they were advertising, as they are today, for school bus drivers. Uh, it was the city schools, and that wasn't a contractor. It was the city schools, and I got paid a lot of money. As I recall, it was three dollars and fifteen cents an hour. So I was, I was rolling in cash. It's part time job. I saved at least half or two thirds of what I earned. Uh, but it was an experience that taught me I didn't want to be a school bus driver. That, that's what I heard about. So, um, I, uh, I briefly considered doing that um, just because it'd be beneficial to my family, but uh, it doesn't jive with my wife's schedule when she needs me around and maybe not quite enough hours. So the, the school bus driving thing, is that what led you into trucking? Because um, before you ended up at Wayne State, you had a spell driving truck too, correct? Going back, when I was in high school, I worked in a factory and I drove. And one of the things I could do, because those were the old days, I drove a truck. It was a straight truck, you know, a 10-wheeler. Not even that, a six-wheeler. Six a, a, single, a single axle straight job. Single axle straight truck, six-wheeler. So, uh, and, and I did that part-time, you know, part of what I was doing, part of my work. And I always liked that kind of work. So it goes back to my sandbox so it really it, that that transportation thing has been in my bones since i was before i was five that's all i can say i have no idea so i had a I had a big i had a big sandbox behind my bedroom outside i lived in southern california uh they put sand or something or other in there and i drove trucks everywhere built stuff for them and you know you know, once you got it in you, you're stuck. I think my parents thought I'd grow out of it. After I graduated from college, I know my father used to joke about, you know, when people would ask, how's your son? What's he doing now? He's in transportation. <laughs> so so he, he kind of didn't want it. But, you know, everybody kind of knew, I guess. But so the question is, why did I do that? And I think that's a reasonable question. I, I've had to answer that question because a lot of people have asked it including in China, actually in the party school in China, where I gave a lecture and that they wanted to know about my history, my background. How did you do this? Just like the same question you just asked. And I thought that was a preposterous question because I'm just, just a regular guy. But they thought it was like the students were all freshmen. They were rather horrified that I would do some of the things that I did. 
And I think the the Hor- what horrif- I, horrified at what horrified that you would work for a living. Well, I took the Teamsters were back in those days were a pretty rough bunch. The Teamsters today are a rough bunch, but clean. Teamsters back in those days had a reputation. Those Hoffa was the president. Jimmy Hoffa was the president. It you know it was a it was a it had they'd gone through the McClellan hearings going back into the fifties. So. They they've been dragged through the mud, and they had a previous president uh, before Hoffa. Hoffa had by that time gotten convicted of jury tampering or something like that. And before him, the guy who preceded him, uh, named uh, Beck, ha- had been uh, convicted of racketeering or something or other. I've forgotten. What if it I was. recall correctly, the predecessor to Mister Hoffa was also like a long-serving president of the Teamsters. Like they. Uh... They seem to keep their leaders for a good long time. Well, uh, Dave Beck wasn't quite so long. So Dave Beck replaced uh, Tobin. Oh, Tobin. Uh, Brian Tobin. Brian Tobin was the guy. It wasn't, right. I don't think it was Brian, though, but it was Tobin. Anyway, yeah. he was from Boston. Good Boston name. And uh, and he had been president of the Teamsters for since he kind of got control of it right after the turn of the century of the 20th century way back so probably i think about 1905 as my recollection i didn't study my own book it's all in the book i didn't study my own book in preparation for this no time for that (laughs) about about 45 years earlier he had he had he had gotten president gotten voted out of office got back into office and stayed in so he had been in for a long time unions tend to have fairly stable leadership for reasons that go far beyond this interview. So don't, don't get carried away with that correlation. Actually, they can be very tumultuous like any other democracy. Um, So at, at, at 45 years, however, he had done a whole lot of interesting things, including taken kind of control of a very fractious union early in the century, established its uh, American Federation of Labor bona fides which was only skilled trades should be allowed into the teamsters it's an afl union which means ice wagon drivers uh soda wagon drivers uh coal wagon drivers all sorts of things that had local deliveries a very local world um this was teamsters they used wagons and horses teams of trucks uh teams of yeah horse teams horse teams yeah horse teams now and i and i met some of those people in my earlier days as a teamster and had long talks with them so i really learned from them directly how they went about their work team wagon drivers were still running in chicago loop into the 30s uh with horses so you know there was a transition period in technologies between the horse wagon the wagons and the horse and the and the excuse me and the trucks that we know today it was so, a so long sp- transition. Speaking of that transition, um, before we carry on to your book, we seem to be in a little bit of an interregnum right now, or at least one uh, heavily informed by marketing and hype about autonomous vehicles. You know, artificial intelligence, which is more properly understood as large language models. And the, there, there's a lot of discussion out there about the, you know, looming sort of redundancy of the truck driver. 
And I'll, I'll, if you could sort of briefly give your thoughts on this comparison, uh, 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 on a comparison between that transition back then and what you see coming down the pipe now. Well, this is a whole nother show, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I guess. So, just, I, ex I expect so much out of my guests. Yeah, well, warning you, because this is a really big area. And I will try to avoid getting into any detail. I am not a I am not a believer in the autonomous trucks story. I think that that's most likely to be in restricted environments like mining, you know, mine trucks to go around and haul stuff around. And one of the or or even maybe yard work, but I question about that. You know, too many people will be killed in the process of running and being run over. Uh, in the process of of developing those driverless trucks, working even in a even in a contained yard space or a defined yard space, I think it's possible to do it in places like that. I'm very skeptical that it can be done uh, over the road. Certainly in my lifetime, but as you know now from our differences in our age, um, <laughs> you, you mentioned that your father is an OTR driver and I was an OTR driver and I always like to say that if I were a truck driver if I were still a truck driver today I'd be dead yeah, so my, my, my old man is 68 so can I say no further comment so, <laughs> uh, so that that is it is a brutal job and people don't grasp how brutal it is so um, that's another right. question so, you so get, let me go back to the story you started me on. Yes. And I'll try to keep it moving faster. Uh, my advisor, I decided that I wanted to get involved in politics. Uh, that was getting involved in, in trying to affect the political process. But my advisor said something, advice I took, which is that you shouldn't go off and do that just being out of college. University education is a great foundation, and you've laid a foundation right here with your degree, but you should get out and work directly with people before you try to tell them what's the way to do things. And I took that advice. And so that's why I ended up driving a truck, because um, I decided that the trade union at that point, you have to understand, at that point, although I didn't, the data weren't there, I know now, the Teamsters represented probably 70% at least of all truck drivers in the United States of any kind at that time. And uh, the only people who were not Teamsters pretty much were in a very few companies that were extremely anti-union, that had stayed really focused around that and could resist the union and paid union wages, by the way. They paid union scale, but that's called the union threat effect. They, they paid the money. They just didn't want to have the relationship and they could do that along with abuse the labor law and they could get away with it. But most of the non-union truck drivers back in those days were in the regulatory exempt sector. Now, you're a young guy, so what's that mean? And the bottom line is that today everybody is regulatorily exempt from economic regulation because economic regulation was what the Fed's the country did away with in 19, 
1980 and then again in 1980 and 1995, I think it was. Yeah. So oh. one of the things I gleaned from your book, yeah. um, I kind of exist on the fringes of the trucking media. Um, I speak with lots of other people in the business and other people who write on it. And there's, there's a sort of, you know, speaking of narratives, there's a sort of simplistic narrative that, you know, uh, the 1980 Motor Carrier Act came along, signed into law by Jimmy Carter, and that from that flows everything that is wrong with the industry. But it's simplistic to my mind in two ways. There was a whole bunch of other le legislation, uh, some of it overlapping between states, feds. There's lots of stuff going on that's not just the Motor Carrier Act. And also, there's other things going on in society and economics demographic change things going that affect the trucking business it's so it's like a lot of people in the in, in the industry like to make it as simplistic everything after 1980 sucks but like it took some time for that to get rolling post deregulation and the story is a lot more complex like do you do you think that's correct everything is a lot more complex but that also I still have to say that, especially when you do the research and you do the empirical work, it is just amazingly clear that that's a cut point in 1980. And now there was three years before that where Alfred Kahn, who was a economics professor at Cornell and the kind of the dean of the world of regulation or uh, industrial organization at that time, and who had been dean actually of the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell, and who was recruited by Jimmy Carter to be his inflation czar. Uh, and he came in and right away was appointed chairman of the Civil Aeronautics Board and used that opportunity to dissolve the Civil Aeronautics Board. So there's a series of events, series of deregulation events, which we now know would be consistent with the neoliberal economic revolution that was started by Carter, the first neoliberal president. Which there's, a lot of, was, there's, a lot, there's a lot of people that like to retroactively change that history and take the blame away from Carter and place it on Reagan. They don't, they just don't know any better. <laughs> they just don't know any better. I mean, I've been having that conversation well, as you can sort of tell by my career path, for a long time. Yeah. I didn't know what that was back then. I was a truck driver back then. I was a truck driver about half of my time during the days of the regulated market and the regulated industry, and about half of my time after the regulated industry. But there how, how, how long how long in total were you on the road? About 10 years. There were some breaks in off and on. I did different things president of community association in Chicago and I took on the Chicago machine and the mafia. So those, that's a, I did that in my spare time um, <laughs> uh, while I was driving a truck, as it turns out, uh, working nights. So I worked pretty much around the clock for many, many years. But so the first, the first part of deregulation, quote unquote, deregulation begins in 1977 after Carter is inaugurated and, First thing he does is hire, hire, um, bring into his administration uh, Fred Kahn, and as I told you, you know he starts his active process of deregulating 
industries generally and trucking in particular. So he also was busy doing that in one way or another for railroads, um, banking. So the very first banking deregulation begins then. The first changes that happened since the Great Depression, the lessons of the Great Depression were put away. So, And the principle here is that all competitive industries should be allowed to compete. The industries that should remain economically regulated uh, would be ones that are natural monopolies. So trucking is not a natural monopoly. Therefore, it should be deregulated. That's the principle. That's the, that's the principle that underlies all of this. And it's important to understand that because it doesn't apply to some industries, uh, to industries that are uh, naturally non-competitive, like a public utility. Okay, so if you need a big power plant and you need to put in billions of dollars to build the power plant and all that stuff, you have and you are putting out wires all over the state uh, that provide the power. Uh, that is a what was considered to be a natural monopoly. It's before the days of independent, efficient uh, wind power. So there were windmills in the old days, but not efficient ones. And certainly before solar power, all those technologies that have changed the power industry. So that has given some pause and possibly changed the dynamics in the public utility sector. But at least to a first approximation, certainly taking the perspective they had uh, 43 years ago, 45 years ago, that's a natural monopoly and should stay regulated. Because that way you essentially, by the use of various economic tools, use those tools to try to get as close to a, a competitive price to the consumer as possible. That's the reason for all that regulation. But I will say that I think Alfred Kahn, among others, believed that we should have regulation of natural monopolies and we should deregulate as so far as we can the naturally competitive industries. So, so just, is sort of in between, just to toss out an example in case your people are thinking about all the different parts. You know, there was a lot of push in airlines for new airlines, People's Express and all kinds of other things around that time that airlines should also be competitive. It turns out that they're not as competitive as you might think. Railroads. We had just had the collapse of the Pennsylvania Central, the Penn Central Railroad, and all of the, particularly all of the railroads in the eastern part of the United States went bankrupt in 76. So that's when Conrail was created by actually a colleague of mine, a mentor of mine, uh, from the trans who, 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 who has since passed away, but she was actually the person who helped really created Conrail because she was working for the Department of Transportation in the state of Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania is quite core to all of those things. And so she created Conrail. And also they, they split off, as you may be aware, split off passenger into a passenger, because you can't run passengers, you can't run passengers and freight really on the same railroad. That's the fundamental reason why we don't have a railroad system, because it was built for passenger, became freight, airlines took over and knocked passenger travel out in train competitively, but but it left passenger rail passenger transportation as an orphan. And so that's why Amtrak was created. 
that railroad get have, rid of passenger transportation. So it's very important. Have you ever rode the uh, uh, via rail in Canada? No, I've always wanted to go across the country. On this. right. So when you, I, I have rode part of that. Um, when you take via rail from say Montreal or Toronto out west, they run on the CN line, which guts through northern Ontario and then into Manitoba. And that CN line in many places in Northern Ontario is still single track all this, you know, a century later or plus since they originally built it, there's a series of sidings where all the freight trains have to do this dance and then via right. rail has to get in there and get in amongst it. And they always get pushed off to the side. If you ride that via train, you spend a lot of time on sidings waiting for freight trains to come and go. Because right. they're they are deprioritized over the freights. Well, and there's a reason for that, because the United States and Canada adopted a private model uh, almost 200 years ago when rails first were created. So Europe, as you may know, does not have that private. The, the infrastructure is owned by the, the governments. Right. So, C so CN Rail is a government is a crown entity. There's only two major rail lines in Canada, CN and CP, and CN, CN is owned by the government. CN is not. So that's not true. That's was true up until 1996, I think it was, 1995. Are they not still a crown corporation? No, they are not a crown corporation anymore. I, I worked to, to create an intermodal in my in Detroit that to make Detroit into a, a commercial intermodal hub, uh, that didn't happen. I learned a lot about corruption in the process. But my <laughs> my informal partner in trying to do this was CN because they had the optimal route for freight for our use. And I had direct contact with the fellow who later became their CEO. And, and they were really focused on building their business, but efficiently. They weren't interested in over over investing and that's because they're not a crown corporation they they I, went private they privatized about uh 25 27 years ago i, I stand corrected right yeah so well you so there you go you, you i corrected a canadian on canadian <laughs> transportation i'm gonna write that down many, many such cases well the original cp rail line that they built to get to vancouver was built mostly by americans a lot of the engineers that worked on it were imported from the united states and, and it's an extraordinary engineering project to build the series of tunnels on the on the canadian rockies to get up out of vancouver and across the rockies down to the, to the plain states if you look at the networks between the two you can see that the cn railroad uh, is very lean. I don't know how much of that is is due to Harrison, Hunt Harrison. Uh, he certainly created the modern CN Railroad by buying Illinois Central and Wisconsin Central, putting different railroads together to create um, kind of an optimal North American network. But it's made for long haul. CP is kind of made for its short haul because it was servicing that's what it did, service all those lumber yards and all that kind of stuff all across the Canadian terrain. And uh, and, and it uh, struggled with efficiency as a result, efficiency being the ratio of, 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 of uh, income to capital investment. So CN has cut back its capital investment in order to create more profits, and Harrison did that, made right. it very profitable. 
So you um, are in Chicago doing night shift trucking. Then you're a community organizer. Then you're in Detroit trying to work out a deal with CN Rail. Um, where did you where did you fit in writing sweatshops on wheels? I mean, this is the primary reason I brought you on the show. Here's this That's book. Right. Here, here's this book that examines right. in very fine grain detail. It's no no offense to you, sir. It's a slog of a book to get through. Like it's like you went hard, you went deep. And, and I look at it and I and I say to myself, boy, I sure was awfully superficial. So you're lucky you got that one. <laughs> <laughs> so it, yeah, published in 2000. How'd I get? How did I get from being a truck driver to that? How did you get to? How did you get to that? And we'll get to more questions after it. But yes, how 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 did you get to it? Where were you working when you studied it? Like, give us yeah. some info on how you got to sweatshops on wheels. Right. So I, as I told you, I lived the lived experience of driving a truck and being a Teamster in Chicago, partly in uh, actually in night shift work, uh, actually in, in hauling a tractor trailer, uh, hauling bread interstate uh, for the first uh, uh, couple of years. And then later as a tank truck driver going interstate, but trying to keep it as regional as I could because I do have a life, or I did have a life. And uh, so about half and half was in the regulated regime, economically regulated regime before 19, from 1980 and earlier, and about half was from 1981 till 86. 86, I hung it up. And so I probably retired before you were born. I don't know. So <laughs> No, was... I, was, I was born in 1979. I'm a lot older than I look. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's good for you or something Whatever. <laughs> a truck driver looks younger than he is that's that's pretty good so i lived that experience before and after and uh and that was the period that i was a a leader of the rank and file reform movement in chicago but all over the north america uh where we were trying to get the make the, the union more democratic and also clean it up uh, which is all of those challenges were great. After I, after I hung it up and prepared to go to graduate school to uh, study industrial relations, which is why I was at that school where you borrowed that book. Uh, I know that library well. So I did a lot of thinking about what am I going to do next, and ultimately decided to go to graduate school and to study. Essentially, try to figure out what was that truck that hit me, to use the metaphor, during that uh, years, the years I drove a truck. So um, that's why I went off to graduate school. I wasn't sure that I wanted to study more trucking. I already knew a lot about trucking, I thought. But ultimately, I became motivated to try to understand better what really happened. And what you see in Sweatshops on Wheels is the product of the education that put my real world on the ground experience, both as a truck driver, as a, as a family person trying to keep a roof over his head during deregulation, because it was brutal. My pay was cut by about one third, just like that overnight uh, in 1981. I just bought a new house or an old house, but I just bought a house gone from a two flat, which is a classic Chicago thing, apartment above and your house, your apartment below. Uh, went to the city, left the city, and went out uh, to uh, to uh, a near-end suburb and 
trying to put a family through school and do all that kind of stuff. So I experienced that's when I experienced deregulation. And that was along with that great uh, economic period that people are so terrified of with the great inflation that we had. Because I, when I bought that new house, I know I paid, I think the interest rate on that house was like 20%. Wow. Right. right. And a balloon mortgage. I had to pay it off within five years. My mortgage would go away. So uh, that's when I learned how to refinance. But that's another question. So <laughs> that's what I had to do. That's what I had to do in order to make uh, to make to make things make a go of things. But I know I had experienced it. I know I had a good education before I went out into the world to experience that. And I went to graduate school to try to put the two together. And I think I did a fair job of that. Nobody knew anything about trucking in the world of industrial relations except for uh, a couple of very old timers, probably as old as I am today. I don't know. They were really old. So there were a few people, maybe a couple still working, but I used their work and I built on their shoulders and I credited them. I appreciate that. Uh, but then I had to go beyond that. And so I became faced more into the 90s after I'd finished my dissertation, faced more with the question of why. And one of the big issues was why is trucking seems so dangerous why is it why are we having this spate of crashes that were such an issue driver fatigue where is that coming from and i will say that for the last oh well 30 years i've been looking into the question of why what the research and the regulators tend to miss because of various blind spots that they have in their own background blind spots in American thinking generally, and and just a lot of political pressure coming from the trucking association. I had to, and the, and the free market movement or the neoliberal movement in economics, I had to figure out for myself what, what went wrong, why did this cause a problem, and what's the source or what's the background behind experience of truck crashes, so truck driver and public uh, safety and health around trucking. And that's what I've essentially devoted the last 25 to 30 years to trying to figure out. And right. uh, so that, that I had a mentor at the University of Michigan Transportation Institute uh, who was a director who said, you need to do truck driver occupational safety and health. And I said, not on your life. <laughs> and uh she won out. She's passed away, and I'm still doing it. Uh, and I didn't know. I didn't want to go do that because that's a different occupational safety and health and industrial hygiene is really a completely different area. One for which I didn't have the disciplinary background, and one that I didn't want to go into. But what I realized was the connection between the economics that uh, that you see I talk about in Sweatshops on Wheels, the economic pressures and the crashes, the safety problems, the fatigue, the, the occupational diseases, diabetes, all these kinds of things, those things can be linked to the, the, the economic pressures under which the trucking industry operates. Right. And so the truck drivers are the bottom of the totem pole. You may have noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> the very bottom. I won't say it in the vernacular, but you know what? You know what flows downhill. 
yeah. and it all ends up on the head of the truck driver. And so I was a truck driver and I didn't buy that. So I realize now how profound was the advice that my long uh, passed away advisor, who was 65 in 1970, so you know, configure, when I started my major, he said, you need to actually get out there and know what you're talking about by really experiencing it, which was kind of a brilliant piece of advice, a real pain in the butt, because other people in my age group had 15 years head start on me in their academic careers. I was just starting up um, in 1987, long after other people had started and 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 had become full professor, I'd gone to graduate school and become full professors. Here I was, a graduate student, uh, studying under a guy who was a year younger than me, who was a full professor. So um, I just had a lot of ground to catch up, and that's what I did. And I think that if I look back at that, uh, I gained a lot from that. Because and and the world, in a sense, possibly gained something from that, because I didn't shoot my mouth off before I knew what I was talking about. It comes through in your book. Like I said, your book is very it's a very deep dive. It's very detailed. It goes it, it looks into many areas, uh, specifically, you know, with the policies of deregulation and all of the other legislation, the various actors involved. And I mean, you know, that, that was written in 2000 and a lot of the problems you identify, uh, you know, truck crashes, um, you know, driver's safety and health uh, have not improved or gone away at all. And, Thanks. and I, you know, nobody's listening. One of the reasons I started writing on this and like, believe me, I come at this from the opposite end of the political spectrum. You do. I started out, I've been all over the place in my head, but. I, I, I lean heavily libertarian in a way. And, you know, f from one of the things you said in your book that I resonates very, very heavily with me. And I want guys to understand who might, you know, th there are a lot of like sort of boomer conservative types, you know, AM radio listeners in the trucking uh, world. And, you know, they, they kind of they're, they're sort of allergic to government intervention or allergic to academics. But something that you said in your book is like profoundly it would fit um, in a sort of conservative outlook in that you identify a transfer of regulation. So we're no longer regulating the industry. We're no longer setting rates. We're no longer having barriers to entry for companies. But the consequences of that have resulted in the drivers being regulated, heavily regulated now by ELDs, driver-facing cameras, all of the stuff that if you're like a sort of independent, self-respecting driver that just wants to be left alone, you bristle at and, and you want it gone. And you see that as like government intervention. So the government stopped intervening with the suits and the people that run the show and started heavily intervening on us over these years, and I mean, you identified that in 2000, yet the problems haven't gone away. So, like, uh, one, one of my projects is to say, like, guys, what you're doing is not working. Um, if you're looking at it from, like, a safety perspective, a health perspective, reducing accidents, uh, making the roads safer, 
um, this transfer of regulation as a cure to the perceived deregulation, the economic deregulation, that's not working either, right? So does that mean we have to like re-regulate the business side of it? Like something has to be done differently and nobody's doing it differently. Like, do, do you agree right. with me about that? Yep. Now, this is this has been my career, like I said, for the last 25 or 30 years trying to get underneath this piece. And uh, if it seems hard to get underneath this piece, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that because I've been trying to get underneath it to try to figure out what's really what's really going on and what's really wrong for all those years. So economists have a term which you may have heard called an externality. Yes. That, okay, so that is actually a concept developed uh, by F.W. Tossig almost 100 years ago, uh, first published, I think, in 29, possibly, uh, that I know of or at least his major book, but so approximately 100 years ago. And it is the following. Or it's not by not by Tossig. I'm sorry, I give you the wrong guy. You care about this, I'm sure. His name is A.C. Pigou. So he was a contemporary of John Maynard Keynes in Britain. Pigou figured out uh, that for, and he was a welfare economist, which doesn't mean welfare-like payments or something like that. It means... Uh, uh, economic efficiency. Economic welfare is maximized when all the costs associated with any production activity are embedded in the price. When all the costs are embedded in the price, then the price is high enough that everybody acts uh, with their own um interests in producers act with their own interests in mind and consumers act with their own interest in mind. And I resisted this idea when I first discovered it about 30 some years ago, um, buried in that Cornell library, ILR library, uh, this book. And uh, I said, wow, that's really right on. That actually explains a lot of stuff. So the best example that I will give you, because it's the clearest example to give you, is pollution, of what an externality is. It means that if producers don't include all of their pollution costs, and there are other costs, I'm just using that as an example to make it easy, uh, in price, then people will buy more of that good or service than would be economically rational. Uh, and because pollution is hard to capture, has been hard to capture until recent years, it's hard to put a price on the pollution that comes out of your tailpipe or whatever, or comes out of any other economic activity. So we can actually measure that. And we can actually, and the most efficient thing economists all agree, most efficient thing we can do is put a tax on it and use that money to uh, to ameliorate the negative consequences of that. But truck driver safety and health or public safety are also externalities. Yes. Uh, if they are not included in price. So a buddy of mine, a colleague who is now retired, 
another guy who's younger than me, who's retired. They're all smarter than me, obviously. He he used to, he's a co-author of mine, actually, but he would rant a lot at the Transportation Research Board meetings that freight is too cheap. Why is freight so cheap? Why is freight too cheap? And a big reason for why it's too cheap is that costs associated with uh, truck driver and public safety and public health and truck driver health are often borne by society and not by the people making the sale, the people who are selling the freight, the people that are selling the goods or the transportation of the goods. I would I would argue that those costs are borne by truck drivers themselves as well. They are born truck drivers. Truck drivers become part of the public. The reason why occupational safety and health rules have been created is to try to capture within the price the full cost of doing business. So if you run, you've seen those pictures of Chinese workers hanging from the side of a cliff or a building or or whatever. I've seen them in person. well, they, just, they, they, they've ju- they their their kids have jumped off bridges here in Ithaca. So, you know, there's something well, going on there. Question. That's a different question. <laughs> We're really, that's something that happens in Ithaca. It's a special, Ithaca is gorgeous and whatever, but I get it. I get it. So, um, but if you've seen the low level of safety and health and the low and the amount of pollution that gets emitted in uh, uh, certain countries, and their and their production that undermines U.S. high end pricing. It, it is essentially a public subsidy of low cost production and cheap freight, cheap goods. And so the the argument against what's called Pigouvian pricing, that is AC Pigou's model, include everything in price, is oh, it's too hard. Well, it's not that hard, especially with today's technology. And it doesn't matter if it's too hard. you got to do it anyway because it damages the economy when you don't. Well, of no. course. And on the on the point about externalizing things, this is where, you know, my libertarian economics brain runs into questions that other people who claim to be on the same team as me want to ignore. I have pointed out that many truck driving schools, CDL mills, as we like to call them, receive money from state and local governments and sometimes the feds. And because the trucking industry has been sniffing its own farts for so long about the driver shortage, which is false. What what happens is, is they can't retain people because the job is like such a grind and it doesn't pay the drivers enough. And we just keep spitting out people. So the, taxpayer is subsidizing the cost of training and subsidizing the trucking companies from not having to pay people or treat them correctly. And I keep banging on about this and sort of boomer conservative types keep saying, no, man, it's a jobs program. It's good. Don't worry about it. Well, so what happens is I call it stealth corporate welfare. It's, It's corporate welfare issued to trucking companies under the guise of a jobs program, which suppresses freight costs to the advantage of people like Amazon, Procter and Gamble, everybody else, all these big shippers, you know, so it moves back up the chain. But at the end of the day, the taxpayer is absorbing this cost, which under libertarian economics is bad, right? Like <laughs> you're not supposed to pass these costs onto the government. 
right? The taxpayers. Rather, I don't want to get into a long discussion of libertarianism. Having studied that when I was in college, I consider that and studied it since, but I consider that to be kind of a of an idealistic thing. Sure. That isn't grounded in reality because the world just doesn't support that. It, 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 it gets muddy. Like I say, I'm not defending it. Go. I'm just I'm just using that their is. argument to point out to people that yeah. ostensibly believe in that by their choices, don't actually believe it. Well, remember the bankers believe in free markets until in 2008, they lost their shirts and they brought down the entire financial system. Then suddenly they were believers in welfare. And, uh, so, Touche. <laughs> yeah. My father would always say, it all depends on whose ox is gored. So uh, I think I think that that's the fallacy in libertarianism is a, a nice ism to have one you got to have one everybody has to have one uh but it doesn't work because it assumes uh kind of in a perfectly individualized agrarian world which doesn't exist so once you once you take away the assumptions the whole thing tends to fall apart and you have you're faced with the need to find a way to uh regulate the world that we live in in an efficient and fair way, um, in a complex system. We live in an extraordinarily complex world and libertarianism, in my view, uh, is a great oversimplification that you know just doesn't work. It, I mean, it's great, but it doesn't work. And, and that's the reason why is because the world is just way too complicated. So my take on it is that the regulations should be structured to appropriately uh, put a cost on the behavior of people who are uh, undermining the market by undercutting, whether it's health, safety, pollution, all those kinds of things, so they don't do those things anymore. And that can be done. Uh, but there are very powerful political forces. I know this will shock you, Gordon, but there are some <laughs> very powerful political forces out there who like corporate welfare. And they're going to make sure that they've got it. And you know how much money they use to lobby. So I will, I will, I will bring it to a, a, a solution, plausible solution. So I've been thinking about this a long time, and you're you're free to put on your website or whatever you do, my my Michael Belzer saferates.com website that has kind of the compendium of all the stuff I've been doing or trying trying to put together. And that's available and you can people there are some presentations that I, I use to put that together. And I'm I'm working it into publications, but publications take a long time to get out and are political, shocking, shockingly so. So here's what I think is 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 wrong and here's what I think is a solution. After deregulation one of the first things, what happened was the unregulated exempt sector flowed in to the common, what had been the common carrier sector and cut prices. And so that's what led to a very rapid collapse of the common carrier sector of the general freight trucking industry. Um, and I talk about that in the book. And that they they simply creamed portions of the business 
that the general freight carriers were hauling as Teamster companies uh, and pulled that freight out from underneath those companies. And when those exempt companies did that, um, they undermined the market that just made the market take an immediate nosedive. So it was the first three years of deregulation, which I'm sure you remember very well, uh, given your, your birthday. So <laughs> those first three years were a rapid collapse, and you can see it in the numbers. And and that those truck drivers who lost their work when all those companies closed down went to work for other companies, many of which were truckload companies, sometimes owner-operator, became owner-operators, and they discovered that they were paying to go to work. So that is not working. That was a huge crisis. And uh, that, that crisis, we blew through those drivers in about five to 10 years. So you started seeing the words labor shortage, truck driver shortage, show up as early as 1987 in, in, in public literature. So that's the first time I saw that. By the way, the American Trucking Association says there's this shortage, and the number is remarkably consistent year on, year in, year out. They're only measuring the outflow. They're not measuring the inflow, and their 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 measurement their me manage their measurement method has remained a black box throughout this time and so that's the pol politically that's why they can always well there's there's another measurement method there's, more money. There, there's another measurement method um some friends of mine at this new ish truck driver advocacy organization that started uh I, know, I guess about 2 years ago they're called CDL Drivers Unlimited Kind of like the idea of Ducks Unlimited. We want to preserve ducks. We make nice waterlands for them to I hang thought out they, and I in. thought they shot them. As soon as they preserve them, they preserve them in order to shoot them. <laughs> so, so, so be wary. Maybe. maybe. Anyway, um, CDLDU um, uh, have hired a bunch of um, uh, interns and researchers because they're kind of on the side of the truck driver. They want their stated goal is for truck drivers to have good careers, get paid well, have a sustainable industry, all that stuff. And so they started looking at the number of actual CDLs that are out there circulating in the economy. So they started asking state DOTs, DMVs, what are your numbers? How many CDLs are there? And they got responses, I think, from 34 or 36 states and then had to use those numbers to make guesstimates for the other 14 or 15 who refused to do business. And they came up with a number that's roughly like 8.8 .8 million. So there's 8.8 .8 million active CDLs that are live. You're good to go right now. And there's only 3.5 million jobs in the country, which require one. Not all of which are trucking jobs. Some of them are like, you know, you drive a a, a, a boom truck or a pull truck for your electrical utility or for cutting down trees or, you know, a propane service truck requires a CDL, even though it's just like a glorified F-series pickup. So anyway, there are roughly speaking three times as many CDLs as there are jobs for them. Where's this driver shortage? I mean, there's tons of us around. 
And that's not even counting the people who may have recently given up their CDL and let it expire. Right. right. So like if so, you count if you count those people, right. it could be in excess of 10 million. I, I don't know what that number is. Many estimates. There is a there is the feds do have the ability to give you that estimate and they don't, I think. Uh so there is something called the commercial driver's license information system that integrates all all the uh, uh, state departments of motor vehicles. So they have that information. Nobody really knows how many of those are actually, how many of those CDL holders are actually likely users, right? So there's there's that question. There's a lot of debate about where that number is. But I agree that the, the analysis should be done. I will say that uh, at the beginning of the Biden administration, I finally started getting emails and calls from the White House. And I've been trying to get somebody to listen for a long time, decades and decades. All of a sudden, they're listening. And they changed the language. So you may have seen this. I assume you have. So they changed the language that we're not going to talk about driver shortage anymore. You can do whatever you want to do. It's free speech, ATA. But we're going to call this a recruiting and retention problem. And at first, I reacted and said, oh, another another rise of the dreaded HR people back into our world. Uh, <laughs> but the, fa the fact is, they actually had it right. And that's what was important. They had it right. They described it right. It's a recruiting problem because you got to recruit people into the industry. And it's a retention problem because you got to retain them. So as you know... Uh, the CDL mills are out there subsidized, cranking out people who go into trucking and last a week or whatever. There's there's plenty of least anecdotal evidence of this. I don't know that anybody really collects it as a data set. But there's a, I've seen data from uh, certain, uh, at least one big company, I would know uh, just how rapid is their turnover. And they've tried very hard to figure out ways to keep people. But the reality is they may accept one in a hundred of the people who apply that may start, uh, but then they start in training and they start in their work. And those people discover, gee, this is not what they said it was in the marketing. This is not what the recruiter said it was. And, uh, and they quit. And there are also companies, there's, two important business models in North America. Uh, I think one is bigger in Canada. That's the indentured servitude model. So they encourage the liberal government in Canada, which I know you like a lot. Uh, they, because they, they're neoliberal, they encourage recruitment of people from poor countries who may or may not have trucking background and certainly don't have any of it in this country or in this continent, and they've been involved in some of the biggest crashes in Canada, and I've, I've, I've got some of my own sources for that to, to explain what's really going on. Yeah, many such and, cases, uh, everything you just said is true. Right. And in the States, we have the debt peonage model, but we, excuse me, we have the indentured servitude model, but it's kind of hidden because it's not legal to bring people over on a work permit 
uh, it's not encouraged to bring people over on work permits. You're supposed to hire people here from this country. And in fact, supposed it's to. Way, S supposed to. Supposed to. I grant that I've been aware of all this stuff for longer than you have, probably even. So at least the time you were in elementary school, for sure. So it's been a problem. But I think the indentured servitude model is more like policy in, in Canada. The debt peonage model is policy here. And that goes back to slavery. Uh, so we remember the system that took over when the North won the Civil War and the Union was reformed as a free country, as that is no more slaves allowed. Uh, but the South reestablished with the Black Codes and then reestablished with Jim Crow and the Ku Klux Klan and all those things, this uh, sharecropper model. Sharecropper is the generic, that's the vernacular term, the publicly known term, for the same thing as debt peonage, or I owe my soul to the company store. That model is quite accepted and, and maybe the biggest model in the US. And I have, especially with my expert witness work, I've come into contact with a lot of companies that are engaged in that process. So that undermines the labor market as well because the labor market can't clear when people are paying to go to work. But it also, encourages people to come to this job and then they discover that this is all fake and uh and they quit so the labor market needs to be repaired but i finally after years of studying this and my multidisciplinary background which is the advantage of having a multidisciplinary degree or all three multidisciplinary degrees is that i don't look i don't have only an economist tool or only a political science tool or only something else. I'm looking for what kind of tool, what's the real problem and what kind of tool do I need to use? So the problem I think is that we have two labor uh, regulatory systems. There's the big body of labor regulatory system that's under the Fair Labor Standards Act and its state level descendants, that's 1935, I think it is. That established the minimum wage and the 40 hour work week. But, but they exempted a number of categories, generally from Jim Crow interests that Roosevelt needed to have on his side to get the votes to pass the legislation from the South. So very strongly Southern and agricultural interests pushed very hard against having the Fair Labor Standards Act cover truck drivers. There's others, you know, the house slave becomes the maid, should maids really be paid for all their time, the caregivers, there's all kinds of other categories of employee, but the one that's most persistently outside the framework and the one of interest to us in this conversation is the truck driver engaged in interstate commerce. And if you look, you will see that the Fair Labor Standards Act exempts those people. As an aside, in, 19, in the late 1970s, so 1978 or 79, the Carter administration established a minimum wage study commission that established a giant report. And you will actually find one of the pieces of that report that's not to be cited, but which I cite. So in case you think that I follow all the rules. Um, that's the trucking industry report. 
portion of this, all the industries. And what they basically concluded, what that author or that study team concluded was they looked at all the industries. So the whole minimum wage study commission looked at all different industries. Do we need to change the minimum wage law? That is the Fair Labor Standards Act in some way. Trucking was, they decided trucking was not necessary. Trucking, technically, truck drivers uh, have to be paid uh, minimum wage. But there is a decision, which I cite in the, I think I decided in the book or I cited elsewhere. Uh, I don't think I knew about it when I was first writing the book and it was a, a, a independent, uh, non-lettered type of researcher who informed me of this. There was a decision, a regional court decision made in Boston in the early 1960s that that was specifically applied to night watchmen. Uh, as long as they they're, they are paid uh, an hourly rate averaged over their entire span of their workday, and it's at least minimum wage, they're covered. So they essentially applied that to truck drivers. The thing about truck drivers is that nobody collects their hours because they don't have to. So this is the problem over on the Department of Labor's side. On the Department of Transportation side, they only care about safety. So they say, right, safety, Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration. So, and they have in their mandate they're not to do economic regulation. They're supposed to do just safety. I have been showing in study after study after study, which are documented ad nauseum and uh, in my website and are still opposed by the industry and by the regulators, most of them, not all of them. It's important. Don't be monolithic. Not all of them. There are those who get it. But the rules have not changed to allow them to change what they do. But I have shown that the pay the truck drivers earn strongly predicts the safety of trucking, the safety of their work. And that's what I've been doing for the last 25 to 30 years, showing that, showing it over and over and over again in research. Uh, some people have picked up on it, but not very many. It's still out there. I'm still pushing the rock up the hill. My question was still why? And so the Fair Labor Standards Act rule says, okay, you got to pay uh, minimum wage, but it's averaged over all hours. What are the hours? Well, they use what's on that logbook. Even worse, they use what's on that electronic logbook. And drivers pop that over to line one or line two instantly when they stop, as you know. As soon as they stop, they're not getting paid. That was the change that happened when the exempt sector rolled into the common freight sector, the common carrier sector in 1981. So that fundamental thing that happened then, you had unionized drivers who were always paid for all their time, loading, unloading, breakdowns, everything was paid. Whether you were an owner operator, who was a teamster and you could be, or you were an employee driver, didn't matter. You're always going to pay for your time. That's the contract. All of a sudden, that changed. So the exempt sector rolls in. They don't pay for time. You don't. You're you, you haul corn. You can wait in that line for 12 hours before they load you, and you can haul that a couple of hundred miles, 
and you can go back and get another load. But you're never going to get paid for your on-duty not driving time, so you're going to log it off duty. So the Fair Labor Standards Act suggests, well, it says here that they only work 40 hours a week. They actually worked 120 hours a week, but they were paid for 40, and that's what's logged. That means that there is a disconnect between the Federal Motor Care Safety Administration's rules that allows you to log all that time off duty and the Department of Labor rules, which say you have to be paid for all your time, period. In fact, as my colleague Steve Vaselli showed, you actually, according to the law, if you don't have a, a negotiated agreement, and I believe it's supposed to be a negotiated collective agreement, which, of course, these people don't have. If you don't have an agreement that says you're going to get, you're going to take off eight hours for sleeping, something like that, you're supposed to be paid for all that time. According to the law, in any other industry, you would get paid for that time. If truck drivers were all paid minimum wage, <laughs> but paid for all their time, they'd be rolling in fat. Right now, they're getting paid less. And that's a real problem. All sorts of variables, all sorts of tricks, all sorts of shenanigans. Bottom line is they're not getting paid. So last year, remember, Biden puts out, he puts out a logistics supply chain report in February of 2022. That was my first trip to the White House to celebrate that. I've not seen that report yet. It, you know, these things don't float around everywhere. Down it, recommendation number 40 or something was, change the Fair Labor Standards Act so that truck drivers get paid for all their time. And overtime. So, no, well, it's all about overtime. But, and this is where I had a hard time figuring this out. Technically, you're supposed to be paid time and a half under the Fair Labor Standards Act. But in fact, you're not paid anything because there's no record of your time. Because FMCSA's rules that allow that allow you to log off duty unless you're driving systematically undercut the number of hours you report, which is why the census information is so far off. Well, we're incentivized to do that too by the paper mile structure. Totally, totally so. But if you were paid, I've had this question a million times and my conservative fallback to that is you don't have to, to change being paid by the mile or being paid by the hour for your driving. You'll get the same impact and probably so. <clears throat> I still prefer being paid for all my time by the hour, period, right? But you probably could stay with the mileage pay as long as you paid for all other time hourly, at least at minimum wage. Well, all of a sudden, trucking becomes much more interesting. So Biden's recommendation was consistent with this change of language that started one year before, which said, pay for all time. Excuse me. That the other, the regulation, the way they talked about it a year before was recruiting and retention. If you don't pay for all time, you're not going to be able to recruit and retain drivers, period. It's those delays where you're paid zilch that brings down the average. It's like flunking tests. If you don't show up to class and you flunk the tests, you fail the class, even if you get A's on the 
on 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 the one or two tests you took, right? You're still going to flunk because you have all those zeros in there. So my recommendation has been pay people for all their time. And problem goes away. Recruiting or retention problem goes away. Crash problem goes away. All sorts of problems go away. Andy Levin, who at that time was congressman from Michigan, put a bill, the... Uh, Guaranteeing overtime for Truckers Act. I have, written, I have Truckers I, Act, right. Yeah, I, I have written ex extensively in support of that right. bill. So he put that forward. He got redistricted to put him out. Um, so uh, he didn't continue in office. But there are senators, I believe the junior senator from California and the senior senator from Massachusetts, both on the Senate side, put co-sponsored legislation forward. Nobody is doing anything during during the second two years of any administration, which is really insane because of the bizarre politics that we have in the United States. So the system is just, system is no longer functional. But that's still out there. And that's the first time that I know of that that's finally been proposed. It's still sitting out there, but it's in it's it's in purgatory limbo, purgatory and deep political limbo until all the politics are over. If Biden wins again, I think the chances are good, and the Democrats win, where they actually have both sides, both houses. I think the chances are good that there'll be a way that you can push that bill forward in those first two years uh, of the second term. I think that's possible. And it's only possible if that happens, because there's no way the Republicans will do that. I mean, Democrats are captured by the industry. Republicans are just captured more. It's just a matter of degree. And that's an old, an old traditional separation or distinction, but I think that's still true. I was horrified to see uh, the trucking industry totally captured the meeting in April, early April of 2022. Uh, but I have met with them since privately, and I, I have met and corresponded with them. And in my experience, the White House is very amenable to making this change. They recommended it. And uh, that's the first time ever. So I'm like, I've been living at this now for 50 years. Well, uh, there's, there's, that's the first time ever. I'm good with that. Yeah. Uh, broken clocks show the correct time twice a day. So, yeah, you know, and if you're just stubborn enough not to go away, so far they haven't knocked me off. They've tried, uh, and and I've been stubbornly hanging in here. I think it's still important to try to push this forward. It is not. Teamsters are in support of this. OIDA is in support of this truck safety people in support of this. And of course, most important, Gordy Locks is in support of this. <laughs> well, let so, me tell you. So you I've, I, I have the benefit. One of the things some people appreciate about my perspective is that I've driven truck in many places. Um, I spent some time down under. I drove logging trucks in New Zealand, uh, drove road trains in the outback in Western Australia. And I've seen how their economies and trucking systems function. And then I've been to Europe a couple of times. I spent some time riding around with a trucker in Iceland. You know, I know many, uh, I know many truckers from England and a couple of guys from Scandinavia. So I sort of have this like, you know, 
or cosmopolitan view of the industry and how it functions around the world. And as a truck driver, you probably ask questions about how you get paid, what do you get paid, all those kinds of things. Right. That's a huge and, for any smart trucker, he's going to ask those questions. Well, and, and I experienced it, right? So, like, when I drove truck in New Zealand and in Australia, I was always paid by the hour. Even when I was doing the OTR stuff in Australia, like, just going up and down really? the West Coast, 30 bucks an hour. And we got paid per diem. I got paid $65 a day cash as living expenses. Got it. You know? Um, that didn't come out of your wage. That's no. very un-American. I, I, hey, worked for me. i you know, right. no, no. well, you okay. get, you get, you get a lot of people like, I, I, I love the United States. There's lots to say that's good about America, but like people who are ultra patriotic about things or claim to be, or at least, you know, they make noises as such always like they wave you know, a flag, but they wave a Confederate flag with the other arm. So watch, uh, watch their both flags are waving. The, the, the problem is the inability to see that you're not number one at everything, right? Yeah, no kidding. My, my, my two highest paying trucking jobs were in Canada and in Australia. Right. And at, uh, I've been living in the United States now for seven years. And the, the couple of trucking jobs I've had here were like not even in the top 10 pay wise. Right. And I, I try and tell guys that like America's great. There's lots of opportunities here. Give it a try. Buy your own truck, whatever. The, the free market's great, such as one actually exists, which doesn't. Right. But anyway, like <laughs> there's a problem here and guys are making way more money in other countries than you are here. And nobody wants to hear that. Like right. in order to love something, you must also see its faults and be able to constructively criticize it. Right. Okay. And I love the trucking industry and I criticize it heavily and it's, it makes it easier for me to do so because I've done it in other countries and seen how other places do it. And most people here haven't. You, you may be aware, but there's been a long, and you'll see some evidence of this in my own. And you can download publications if you're into reading papers as well as books. But anyway, the, particularly the most recent one that we published, I actually was, that reviewers wanted me to include a safe rates section that kind of does some comparative work about safe rates in elsewhere in the world. So I I consider to be positive about it. I decided to consider the move to pay truck drivers minimum wage to be a movement towards safe rates uh, in in the U.S. Uh, at least uh, minimum rates. But Australia is really uh, right now uh, on the verge of passing legislation, labor legislation that would reinstitute safe rates, a mandated set of rates for Australia. It would improve because there are gaps in the system where uh, particularly road train drivers are not covered by the rules and uh, and don't get paid for their, their non-driving time and don't have an award, which is the term in Australia you probably are familiar with. Everybody's covered by an award, but their awards for interstate truck drivers don't exist. Awards are intrastate, and there's agreements to do things, but there's no national system that says, here's the truck driver award for interstate trucking. And the and the union there has been campaigning for this for the last 25 to 30 years. So uh, a colleague of mine, uh, former 
general secretary of the Transport Workers Union, now a senator, is working to get the law changed at the federal level. Um, His name isn't know, Glenn is, Sterl, by the way, is it? I know Glenn Sterl. That's not the guy. He's a senator and he's a truck. He's a he's a, a truckie, uh, a, a road train driver and his son's a road train driver. But it's Tony Sheldon. Tony, Tony was the when I met him, he was general secretary of the transport workers of New South Wales. Uh, a few years after I met him, he became general secretary for uh, the entire Transport Workers Union of Australia, and he became a leader of the International Transport Workers Federation uh, movement uh, for uh, safe rates, paying people, paying truck drivers for the globe, uh, and then stepped down, retired from that job. Michael Kane is now in that job right now. He's also great. But Tony moved to become a senator, I think, from New South Wales, but I'm not sure, you know, it must be because that's where he lives or he lived. But they're, they have a labor government and it's actually a labor government that actually has a majority and they're making changes in law about work workers, circumstances for workers, including their pay. I don't know what the, what the rules are going to be exactly, but I know that they're working towards getting them. It's the right. usual... I'm Pulling have, teeth. That's what you do with the, So this show, uh, this podcast is yeah. syndicated through a very good friend of mine uh from New South Wales in Australia um by the name of Mike Williams. Mike and some of his business partners have an online radio network and you can put an app on your phone and it's specifically for truckers. It's called Australian on the Road Radio. Ah. Um I've been a guest on Mike's show. Mike is very good friends with Glenn Sterl. And I'm going to run all of this by Mike. Well, he's going to listen to it. And some Australians are going to listen to it. And hopefully everything you've said is correct. And if not, they'll fact check us. I yeah. wanted to move on. We're, we're, we're an hour and a half in now. And I wanted to ask you a couple other questions before you go. And I know you've been very generous with your time. On the issue of the transfer of regulation, and in your book, you, you call some of that social regulation. This is the part like on the ground, being a trucker, doing the job, doing the work. It drives me crazy and has limited my opportunities because I refuse to participate with any of this garbage. Electronic log devices, driver facing cameras, uh, many layers of uh, health and safety and human resources, heritage harassing you when you get back from your trip. I, again, you know, at heart, I'm a libertarian of sorts. And I think my 26 years of never being in a collision and having not gotten a speeding ticket in like 17 or 18 years is good enough, right? There's something wrong in the, in the way we regulate people, the way we yes. perform that social regulation where everything is done by the lowest common denominator. And if you prove yourself to be a safe, responsible professional operator and you're doing the job correctly, like, you shouldn't be treated like the people that don't, which drives me crazy. And speaking of Cornell, uh, there's a professor there now, uh, Karen Levy, who wrote this book, Data Driven Truckers Technology in the New Workplace Surveillance, which I'm sure you've read, and she cites your work in it. That this, this social regulation, clearly it's not working, right? We still have 
lots of truck accidents. You know, there's an argument to be made how many of them are caused by car drivers involved in the incidents, but that's another question. But like, they just want to keep teching harder. They want to keep throwing more tech at us in our faces. What's your opinion on that from your position, having studied this most of your life? Like, where do you come down on the social regulation? Social regulation was what was required when economic regulation went away. The problem is we're still not dealing with the underlying economics. So as I explained in much detail before, people not being paid for their loading and unloading and any other downtime, waiting for a dispatcher, whatever it might be, means that they log it off duty. And whenever you do that, you increase your fatigue because you got to, whatever you logged off duty because you weren't getting paid for it, you have to make up for it on the road because you got to get a certain amount of work in in order to be able to pay the bills. So this is called target earnings. And I have a paper on that, recent paper, 2018. You can download that paper. The social regulation was created or intensified because there was no longer an economic regulation underlying the industry. And it was dog eat dog. It went from dog eat dog to cat eat cat and everything else. Cats eating dogs. I don't know. So <laughs> the problems, in my view, are the, the excess. There's always going to be some crashes. The, the Norwegian kind of no crashes or Swedish zero fatality. There's all that kind of stuff. That's that's misleading to them and everybody else. There'll always be something. But I, I can show you that union drivers are safer. The drivers who are paid more are safer. Drivers who paid all their for all their time are safer. They're not in the same hurry. All kinds of things. We can show that. Hard for me to, to do it as well as I would like because the data are so bad. We use the engineered solutions, which is driver-facing cameras or uh, electronic logbooks, which I have opposed. I said here, back when they at FMCSA, before FMCSA was FMCSA, it was the Office of Motor Carriers in Federal Highway. And I had a contract with them and they said, what do you think about these electronic logbooks? And I said, great to have some information, but that doesn't tell you anything. You can't regulate with them because you don't know what's going on when drivers log off duty. Could be pitching freight, could be sleeping. You don't know any of it. And the solution is to pay people for all their time. So it, it's not exactly economic regulation in that it's not the routes and, and <clears throat> rates and all that stuff for the carriers, but as it was in 1980 and before, but it is establishing a foundation for the labor market so that nobody works for free. And so if nobody works for free, a lot of the problems will go away. The whole <clears throat> rising tide will lift all the boats. Crashes will go down. The thing about it is those technology companies aren't going to make money if we solve the problem by fixing the real problem. And the goal is to make, for those companies, is to make money. Look, autonomous trucks should be just an efficiency issue. If it works for you, go ahead. You know, try it in try it in your parking lot first, maybe, huh? Maybe not on the road where it doesn't work. So 
they changed their tune and they started to sell it as being a safety enhancer. Only if you don't believe that human beings are capable would you believe that trucking would be safer if it was done automated as opposed to by real people. I can show you, I can show anybody, have shown for years, how much safer and how much product more productive is a well-paid truck driver. You don't need all that technology. Again, but the people who are trying to sell all that technology won't make any money. So they are trying to capture the regulators to get them to mandate that they use their technology. That's called regulatory capture. The Chicago School of Economics is where that concept was, was kind of nailed down. Very familiar. The trouble was their solution was deregulate everything, which in my view was just ideological and just dumb. So it wasn't intellectual. So they applied the their intellect to certain things and erased that intellect for other parts. So if you pay people for all their time, if you pay people at least a minimum wage, if all those things happen, it becomes better in trucking. You attract better people. You the 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 claim, the alleged driver shortage or the recruiting or attention problem goes away. If you do not allow debt peonage models like lease purchase agreements, and you simply make those illegal, they've tried to make them illegal now. They have been illegal in the United States for decades, and the companies still do it because they have fancy lawyers who come up with clever ways to skirt the intent of the law. But if you, you crack down on that, and you make that illegal, then that problem goes away. If you make people, I'm in favor of, this is even more controversial. I'm in favor of, there's an old model that I think can be renewed. And that is the one where everybody's an employee. If you're supervised and operating under somebody else's authority, you should be an employee of the company. Paid for all of your time. If you bring your own truck into the business, the company can lease the truck from you. So you get a check as a driver and you get a check as the business owner of the person leasing the truck to the company. End of problem. If you're operating under your own authority, you're an independent trucking company. That's fine. You can do that. Unless you're supervised by the company that you're driving for that's responsible for all your safety and all that other stuff. So you gotta be truly independent or not. But the idea of calling people independent owner operators or really lease purchase drivers, that is debt peons, is absurd. Those rules are logically logically comprehensible, would establish a level playing field in trucking. Everybody would win. Uh, consumers would probably have to pay a penny more for a peach. I don't know. I'll just say that. <laughs> well, the, 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 the cost increases are on the margins. Very but, much on the margin. What a way to end it. I uh, I agree with everything you just said. Um, you've got uh, years of study to back it all up. Now, when I went looking for a copy of Sweatshops on Wheels, I could not find one new anywhere. Um, there's a few of them floating around used on Amazon. Am I to understand it's out of print? It went out of print. I haven't checked. I uh, managed to force... Oxford to put it back in print. They don't pay me for any of it. 
but it's supposed to be on in the books uh, uh, print on demand section. Have you checked Oxford University Press? You can check them. No, but I will recommend there. that to my listeners who uh, it, might want to might want to read the book. Yeah, it has been available on uh, from <clears throat> from Oxford or from Amazon on the books the print on demand. Sometimes they don't have very many in stock, but you should be able to find it. It costs more than I because it's more expensive to print on demand. Costs more than it used to cost, but I think it's about fifty-five bucks or something. It's more than it should be. If they're not publishing and if they've taken it out of print, then I'm going to go after them to get the copyright back and make it free. But I don't know. Right. Well, in my fun. estimation, as a professional driver of 26 years, yep. um, everything you wrote in that book in 2000 uh, resonates and is still important today. And more people should read it. I'm glad it's still cited by people like Vichelli and Karen Levy. I hope to get Mr. Vich or Professor Vichelli on the show here. Uh, he's had, much like yourself, some health issues as of late, but no matter, we'll get him on soon. Uh, you mentioned a website as well, Safe Rates. Yes. www.michaelbelzer-saferates.com. You'll find it in the signature of my email, so you should be able to copy it from there as well. And you can put it on your website or do whatever. All right. Well, Professor Belzer, thank you very much for that. I hope to send some people to your work and um, you, you keep fighting that fight. I really appreciate uh, all of your work and everything you've done and for the gracious amount of time you've given myself and my audience. And well, it's good to be here. It's good to be able to have an audience to talk with, especially one that knows what it's talking about. All right. Thanks again. And uh, way of the road. <laughs>